welcome everyone to Butterflies and Bravery. We are, as always, so happy that you are tuning in, listening to us. You've invited us back into your space <laughs> with this podcast. I am your host, Whisper, and my co-host, Jemima. And we are really excited to welcome our guest today, Heather Plett, who is a holding space specialist <laughs> from oh. what we hear. Welcome, Heather. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Oh, me too. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> when you talk about mental health, there's so many different avenues that it comes from because it's as different as each person is. It's individual. And being able to talk about things in both the raw way and also in a healing way, it humanizes the whole side of mental health and healing and what it is and that it is something that we all need. You can't never go to a doctor in your life. You're going to always need a doctor. And so, you know, anyone that has a brain, you're going to need to have those conversations. So we're excited about that. I think every one of us is on a lifelong journey in this regard. I don't think it's a journey that there's ever a final destination. We're all just, you know, trying to be travelers along the same journey. Absolutely. Yes, <laughs> very true. So tell us a little bit about yourself, also how you came into your work and what you do. Sure. I'm the author of a book called The Art of Holding Space, A Practice of Love, Liberation, and Leadership. And I'm also the co-founder of the Center for Holding Space, which I created with my business partner about a year and a half ago. And I have been, for the last 10 or so years, I've been working as a facilitator, coach, workshop facilitator. And it started about 10 or so years ago. Before that, I was working in, in government and then in nonprofit for a long time as a leadership working in leadership and communication. So then I launched this business really wanting to support people and really feeling like I had some um, skills and gifts that I wanted to share, especially with people that were developing their personal, doing personal development, leadership development. And a few years into that business, my mom was dying. In the end, she did die of cancer. And during that time, in the final years, the final days before my mom died, actually, we were caring for her in our home. And during that time, we had a palliative care nurse that was coming to support us. And there was a really profound few days there where she was offering us this really unique quality. And, and so for a long time after my mom died, I was trying to figure out what was that unique presence and quality that this nurse offered us. And about two years after my mom died, I wrote a blog post about how she was holding space for us by supporting mm. us and supporting mom as she was dying. And I learned the language of holding space from my facilitation training, but it really landed quite solidly for me, understanding how somebody who was a palliative care nurse could show up at my mom's deathbed and have the right skills and the gifts and a sense of what was needed an intuitive sense of what was needed, but she wasn't judging us or directing us. She was just showing up and giving us what we needed. And that's really what made my whole work blossom. I wrote a blog post about that about seven years ago and it blew up all over the world. It was, went wow. so viral that it crashed my website. <laughs> and I like, it was just like everybody suddenly wanted to talk about holding space. I didn't come up with the concept, but I helped surface it into the world. And okay. that 
really changed my life. And since then, I've been teaching people and writing a book and doing a lot of more writing and teaching around this concept of holding space. Yeah, it's fantastic. I know from your uh, website that we found you live in Canada right now and you have three daughters. Mm -hmm. I do three daughters and they're all a mid launch. I moved two of them both at about 24 hour drive in either direction. And then one is still at home and will probably be moving out this summer. And so I'm at this interesting place in my life where I'm becoming an empty nester. I'm a single mom (laughs) and supporting my kids and launching into their adulthood. That's amazing. Uh, We're both, both of in us. the exact same place. <laughs> yeah. My daughter just moved out a month ago. Really? Yeah. 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 My youngest, she comes back a couple days out of a week, but she's moving into her boyfriend's place. My other kids are, I have one up in Oregon, one over in, in uh, Arizona, and then one, he's here, he lives here with me, like in the area he's autistic so he mm-hmm. we keep close contact but yeah they're like <laughs> empty house now i'm like what are you supposed to do with yourself <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm just figuring that out all this time on my hands and <laughs> yeah it's a whole new era of our lives for sure especially when you've been both the, the dad and the mom for them yeah it, it's yeah. like it yeah there's this like extra space that you don't have anymore uh, yeah. Yeah. And then my youngest daughter went through some really serious health concerns in the last, well, since pandemic started, ironically, she got diagnosed with this really rare illness early in the pandemic. And she's had to have 10 surgeries since then. And so she was high needs and high, high attention in the last two years. And then she up and moves 24 hours away. And I'm like, okay, so what do I do? Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was a weird thing to be under so much stress with her. And then suddenly she's gone. So the stress doesn't entirely go away, but it just changes. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like that mid launch. (laughs) Our kids are mid launch. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds funny. You mentioned that you had grown up Mennonite? I did, yes. Wow, that's very interesting. So what was that like? I I never know how much to say about it because a lot of people don't know much about what it means to be Mennonite and a lot of people have certain assumptions. The Mennonites, a lot of people associate us with similar to Amish or something. Mm -hmm. They're quite restrictive, quite closed communities. Where I grew up was not as much that way. We blended in with our neighbors, and I grew up in a very small town, so you couldn't visibly tell differences. We weren't dressed a certain way, or we weren't didn't wear the head kerchiefs or, <laughs> or some buggy or that kind of thing. We had motor vehicles and things. So we did, in a lot of ways, blend into the culture, but in other ways, we were very much still set apart because the religion mm-hmm. was really quite restrictive. We We didn't do the things that gave the community an opportunity to bond. So our neighbors would all go to the dances and to bingo nights and anywhere that there was dancing or alcohol, we couldn't go. And so it was always, as a child, it was growing up a lot, feeling on the outside of what the larger community was doing. I've done a lot of studying around attachment theory, and I've I've done some analysis of my own childhood. And what was interesting about the Mennonite childhood is it felt fairly safe being in the church, but it always also felt like 
if you crossed the line, you were no longer safe. There was a conditional safety there. Maybe something that sounds familiar for you. If you would go and misbehave in certain ways, if you would participate in things like drinking and dancing or those kinds of lifestyles, then you were shunned or then you were outside of the church. Like I would say it was a mix. It wasn't an extreme isolation, but we were still not ever fully allowed to participate in what our friends would bond around. Hmm. Interesting. That's really interesting. And then I know you said the thing about your mother and all of that, but how did you get, get into the field of... I don't want to say the holding space field. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we kind of are creating arena. Arena. <laughs> there we go. Arena. Yeah. yeah, that's it's a really good question. I, I think, first of all, I, I have a background in communication. So I've always been a writer and I really paid a lot of attention when I worked in leadership. I was very much interested in human dynamics and what made communities work, what made relationships work. I was very much a student of that all along. Mm-hmm. And partly it was to try to find my own path, my own healthy relationships, my own community. But partly it was how do you as a leader look after people and support them so that they can be in healthy relationships. I think a lot of it was just personal interest, personal desire. But it was also like when it comes to holding space, I really define it as showing up for a person without judgment or without desire for control or without imposing my own views and beliefs on them. And so in some ways, when I really look deeply, I realized that some of what I'm doing in certain ways is a bit of reaction to what I was raised with, the conditioning of being raised in a fairly restrictive religion, a fairly conditional environment where you receive love if you're doing a certain action. What I really wanted and what I was you know, longing for and looking to create is how do we create systems and families and relationships where it is not so tied to your behavior. And so how can I support you in a way that is is a healthy detachment where I'm not trying to control the outcome of whatever your decisions are, and I'm, I'm allowing you to have the experience that you need to have. That's good. Really yeah, good. that's a really good When I think about holding space, to me, it brings up the thought of that a lot of it is is acceptance. Mm -hmm. And like you said, that like the allowing and the accepting of it is what is right here, right with me right now. And and that's all I can do is just be with it. It's almost like a, a form of mindfulness. So to speak. It is. Mindfulness is very much interwoven with what we do. We teach some level of mindfulness in our work because it really is witnessing and being present for what is showing up and, and noticing and being present and then not getting to attach to something where you feel right. clingy and you feel like you need to direct the outcome and you get anxious if things aren't going your way and you get attached to whatever is unfolding. So it is, it's mindfulness and it's open heartedness and it's, it's a willingness to, to take responsibility for yourself, but not to try to control that other person. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, that was actually something that we wanted to ask you is how does one do that? <laughs> because <laughs> it's easy to to, yeah. to say a lot of times as humans we we listened to respond, not to hear. Yes. Yeah. And so how does one learn to hold space for someone else and not 
try and introduce all of their own um, agendas or whatever it may yeah. be. Well, I can tell you, I teach an eight-month class on this. Give you the answer in one podcast. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I'll give you the Coles Notes version, but you may need to take the class to get to, to learn it all. The eight-month program that we teach, the first two months is about just understanding the concepts, holding space largely for other people. And then in the second module, we go into holding space for yourself. And more and more, what I realize is that's the critical module. You can't do any of the other stuff until you learn to witness yourself, until you learn to have healthy boundaries, until you learn to be present for your own baggage and do your own healing work. Because the reason we try to control the outcome, the reason we try to control each other is because we have never witnessed our own fear. We have never been really honest about our own insecurity. We've never, all of these things, and we haven't been taught to, especially in high demand kinds of religious uh, environments and where we're giving up control to a God or a, you know, whatever, some other power. We were never taught how to really be in tune with our own needs, our own desires, our own boundaries. We outsourced all of that to those with more authority, more power, and to the God of our understanding or the God that we were being told to worship. And so we don't, we lost a lot of ground. And so a lot of the work in learning to hold space is how do I really show up for myself first? How do I understand myself How do I begin to witness my own biases without getting really defensive? How do I witness my own fear without trying to hide it or chase it away? How do I witness my own pain without just trying to silence it and numb it out? How do I do that healing work so I know how to love myself and then I can love other people and I know how to show up for them in the same way? Yeah, that's really good. I think, like you said, learning to hold space for yourself is first and foremost, and because it, hard. So, <laughs> yeah, it's very hard. When what I talk about when I talk about holding space is being supportive and, and not attached to outcome, etc. The opposite, what what I define as the opposite of holding space is what I call hijacking space. And when you hijack, now suddenly you're trying to control, you're trying to direct, you're trying to manipulate, you're trying to coerce, you're gaslighting, you're shaming, all of those things because you need control. When we are in our own pain without witnessing our own pain, we're going to hijack space. And so if we don't want to hijack space and we genuinely want to hold space, that's when we have to first witness our own pain that's causing us to hijack space. Yes, that's fantastic. Yeah. It's hard sometimes to see those space hijackers and think, oh, you poor dear, something is terribly wrong with you. Yeah. <laughs> and you look at them and you're yeah. like, wow, you're a real ass. <laughs> but that's a good way to look at it. They're doing it because they don't know how to hold space yeah. for themselves. And sadly, the people that hijack space are the ones who were never allowed their own space. So if you've grown up in an environment where you haven't been given the grace and the gift and the love to hold your own space, you're not going to know how to do it. You're only responding to the way you've been trained. And so 
that's the training that that we end up bringing into our relationships. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing this series of writing right now, really trying to unpack some of my own traumas and some of my own and, you know, and, and uncovering even some of my old letters from my mom and things like that. And just witnessing how much I, as that 18 year old, that 22 year old wanted to be truly witnessed for who I was and not just judged for my sins or my shame. And not getting that, you're going to look for ways to find it in relationships and you, you just don't know better ways. And so you hijack space. You try to, you try to control people to get what you need from them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Whew, it's emotional. <laughs> Everything you said was, it was very familiar. <laughs> um, one of the things that sometimes happens when you've when you've spent some of your life on the outside, you end up often making connections within a community that have had similar experiences as you. Like you said, no one was ever seen, no one was ever validated, no one was allowed that space. And so when everybody comes together, everyone's shouting, not literally, but figuratively, everyone's like shouting for validation, for space. And everyone's doing it in a different way, <laughs> whatever way that might be. And it's it is, it's almost like you're juggling because you're trying to hold space for yourself. You're trying to hold space for whatever someone else is going on. And then you're also trying to find this place where you're protecting yourself while allowing them. And so it's like these three sort of balls that you're trying to juggle. And I, I mean, we see it all the time where it's just so easy to just like instant react and just be like, you're not listening to me or you're being an asshole, whatever it might be. There's that instant reaction. And then pulling back and right there, I think that's where you arrest the experience of leaning into what's going on instead of just being like, Hey, I'm out of here because <laughs> you guys are all idiots and assholes, or I'm out here because you guys are like such a disaster and, and you just need to get over your past or whatever. You know, it's like everyone's seen the different side of the elephant, so to speak. But the second you just stop the experience is you're stopping yourself from being able to go into the, that space. It took me a long time, a really long time, and some of it's fairly recent, learning how much of my own behavior, my own reactivity, my own everything was rooted in trauma. And I didn't know that, like I say, a lot of it until really recently. And even the stuff that I thought was really good was rooted in trauma. And I don't know if you know that the trauma response tend and befriend. Is that a familiar term for you? So there's the fight, flight, and freeze um, responses. And then there's a fourth one. And some people call it fawn, fight, flight, okay, freeze, yeah, or that, fawn. I've but fawn. the one that I've heard, and there's some research and there's a there's some academic papers written on it. It's called tend and befriend. And they find this particularly in mothers that they have a grown-up conditioned to know how in a high-stress situation we – tend to everyone else and look after the children, make sure the safety of everybody else is looked after. And then we befriend the source of our harm to try to soothe the situation. Now, anytime, and I've been in an abusive relationship where this was so evident, where I was always trying to look after and care for my kids and I've got to soothe people so that they're not going to cause any harm. But in the meantime, nobody's looking after us. And we haven't been taught to look after ourselves. And it's completely second thought and it's way, way down on the priority list. 
And so we find ourselves getting into these environments. And even once we start healing the trauma, we get into these environments where we start beating ourselves up because what's wrong with me? Why am I being so reactive? Why am I getting so easily hurt by things people are saying? Why why can't I tough it up? Why don't I have I have tougher skin? But we've never healed that broken part of us that didn't know how to receive love. And we've never been given the love to to actually heal it. So it's, it's, yeah, it's lifelong work to get through some of this stuff. And then like you say, one traumatized person shows up with another traumatized person and everybody's trying to get love out of the situation. And <laughs> nobody knows how to, nobody's told us how to, to get real genuine love and how to receive genuine love. And so we're projecting our stuff at each other. And it is some of the trickiest places to navigate, even though you feel really good to be surrounded by people with similar experiences, suddenly you realize, oh, wait, they're all as fragile as I am. (laughs) And we're all going to hurt each other in this. (laughs) Yeah. And also on that same line, holding space for people that are just beginning their healing journey. Let's put it that way, because we've been at this for quite some time at the whole like introspection and trying to learn more about ourselves and our mental health and all of this. And then some people Mm -hmm. are just coming into that. Oh, okay. I think maybe I have some problems. I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And it's hard sometimes not to be judgmental. You've had that problem for 20 years. Maybe you should have noticed something. (laughs) Sometimes it takes people a long time to come around and then it, it's easy sometimes to be a little bit judgmental and like, you shouldn't be so angry or you shouldn't be this or you shouldn't be that. And that's holding space too, isn't it? It, it is. And, and if there's a few things I'll say about that. And one is that there's a really fine line between holding space and allowing people to harm us. There's one term that I've adopted that I call a shock absorber. And a shock absorber is not somebody who's holding space. They're absorbing the pain other people are throwing at them. And so if you're in an environment or in a relationship where the other person has not healed a lot of their pain and they've got to project it at you, unless you have good boundaries, unless you have done some really good healing work to to deflect it and not absorb it, you become a shock absorber. And I've been the shock absorber in my life because you don't have the skills or the self-love or the whatever it is that to say, I, I respect that you're in pain and I'm not absorbing your pain. You've got mm. to find a way to heal your own pain. And so that's the one thing I'll say is that, that we have to keep healing and in our healing, develop the boundaries that protect our healing. Mm-hmm. And boundaries are flexible things. I actually don't even talk about boundaries much anymore. I use the, the term psychic membranes because membranes are a little bit more flexible. I won't go into too much detail because I teach lots about that in my book, but we have membranes between us. And if somebody is trying to hurl things through your membrane, then they may not be a safe person or they may not be safe right now until they've deflected and gotten rid of some of this negative energy. So it's finding that fine line, like, cause they're allowed their emotional experience, but they're not allowed to throw it at me, <laughs> have it somewhere else. And once you're in a place where you're not going to harm me, I will talk to you and I'll hold space for you. It's walking those fine lines with people. 
Yes, that's really important. When I think about myself and why I've (laughs) allowed people to throw things at my membranes, I think it comes from this super intense, almost like a need to not ever reject someone because of how rejected I always felt. (laughs) <laughs> but I think that's, as you speak about it, I, I didn't think it's really oversimplifying what you're actually doing when you, pr- when you protect yourself and you say, hey, have your experience, but don't hurt me in the process. That's not a rejection. That's absolutely not a rejection. That's actually, it's even more accepting than a rejection. It, it is. It's, it's hey, I, I, I acknowledge you can have it. And here's as much as I'm able to take. So it's trusting a person to take accountability for their own stuff so that we can be in relationship. I think it's a person called Prentice Hemphill that uh, there's a quote, healthy boundaries are the distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously. I might be misquoting this, but it's when, when there's a healthy boundary, I can actually love you better than when there's an unhealthy boundary. That's the essence of the, the quote. And I I think that's really important. And those of us with abandonment trauma, with whatever trauma in our past, it takes us a long time to learn those boundaries. Because like you Mm -hmm. say, because of our own abandonment trauma, we don't want to abandon somebody else. And so anything that might be seen as abandonment, we won't do. But in the process, we abandon ourselves. (laughs) And that's that's the hard truth of this is, am I afraid to abandon you. And in the process, I'm going to let myself be hurt. I'm going to let myself be abused by whatever your behavior is. Yeah. <laughs> it's, al- it's almost because it, it's because it's a film familiar space and you feel that you can be there. It's like you feel the responsibility to go be there, <laughs> which I think that's the, what you're saying that the, the whole 10 side of the tent tend and befriend is that, this other person probably needs to be angry more than I need to feel safe. And that's not true, but that's what we believe because of our old patterns. I think we, those of us who who have this kind of trauma, we we're very good at downplaying the importance of our own safety and a little story I'll share about that. So my marriage was an unhealthy marriage for 22 years and it came out of an unhealthy past before that not long before I met him and and got married I was raped and so I didn't have healthy sexual experience and then I entered into a marriage in which I continued to not have healthy sexual experience and yet I I didn't think I deserved any better or I thought it would get better or I thought whatever I thought. Mm -hmm. But what I wanted to say more than that is that I, my former husband had some significant mental health challenges and had a couple of uh, significant breakdowns where he ended up attempting suicide. And that became one of the central parts of our marriage and one of the reasons it was so hard to leave him in the end was I was taking responsibility for keeping him alive I thought it was my job to keep him alive and if I divorced him he might try again and this time succeed and then my kids their dad would not be alive and so I put all this burden on myself at the expense of myself to keep him alive and to keep him from harming himself. 
And meanwhile, I was allowing him to harm me. And this is what we do. We heap all this shit onto ourselves. We protect other people. We look after other people at the expense of ourselves again and again. It's like preemptively taking responsibility for the bad thing. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, since I know what's coming, I'll I'll. (laughs) try and defer it. I like that quote. What was the author that you said? Um, I want to look him up. (laughs) Prentice Hemphill. They have a podcast uh, called Finding Our Way, I believe it's called. That sounds cool. Yeah, it's it's worth looking out into. I really appreciate their their teaching. Oh, that's great! Thank you. Oh, <laughs> it's good stuff. It's it's so easy, so easy to to do that <laughs> to support someone else and then not be supporting yourself. Mm-hmm. And it feels like you know such an unselfish thing to do, but. Oh, we can get, tell ourselves all kinds of stories about what good people we are for doing it. And, <laughs> right. you know, and especially when you've got a lot of religious baggage, you need to be a good person. Like we right. need to be looking after other people. This is so baked into the way we show up in the world. We were doing good to get into heaven. All of that stuff is so programmed into us. And so we can't turn people away. We can't abandon people. That's not being behaving in the way we've been trained to behave. It's easy for me to, like, the synapses in my brain that I need to unravel is that, like, the more I sacrifice, the more valuable I become. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. that's, I know that's not the case. Like, I can intellectually speak those words. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, the, old, the, old, the old noggin hasn't yeah. fully believed it yet. <laughs> so that's one piece that I've continued to unpack, too. And I had to really dig deep for that one because... The background of the Mennonite faith is that we have a history of martyrdom. In fact, I've got a book that's this fat. It's called Martyr's Mirror. Look it up sometime. It's like 1,100 pages, the fattest book ever. And in Mennonite homes, it's second to the Bible in terms of their, you know, religious texts. It's got thousands of stories of people who were martyred for their faith, people who died. And so the Mennonites were tortured and killed in first in Europe and then they they fled to Russia and then they started getting killed in Russia and then they fled to North and South America. So there's this deeply embedded history of martyrdom and we were raised believing we needed to be prepared to martyr ourselves for the faith. And so martyrdom yep. is such a conditioned trauma like it's in our historic talk about generational trauma. It's so deeply rooted in us that we'd lay down and sacrifice ourselves because that's what we believe is that we're supposed to do, especially in support of our faith and, and people. And so, yeah, like giving up yourself, making a sacrifice of yourself is, yeah. is, so, is yeah, part of the yeah, training. Sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that was a common conversation that we would have as a, the apocalyptic type teaching that comes into play a lot too. Like we used to have conversations as I'm talking like 13, 14, 15 year olds, and you're talking about the ways that you're going to be able to die for yeah. God or mm-hmm. the way that you're going to be tortured and that type of thing. And it was like a shadow that walked with you all the time. So yeah. it might not be there in our belief system, but it's translated into losing those boundaries, like you said. And then if we didn't, we'd be left behind. And then there was the fear of hell. 
talk about another kind of trauma. I don't know if you do any research in uh, a religious trauma syndrome. Do you know Marlene Winnell's work at all? A little bit, yes. Yeah, that's another really good resource, a book called Leaving the Fold, where she talks about um, fundamentalist religions where the, the fears as well are so ingrained into your psyche that, you know, that's some of your childhood trauma is believing you're never safe because you might get left behind and tortured in the pits of hell if you don't be good little boys and girls. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, too, because... You start thinking that's love, that it's love that you're letting them hijack your space or whatever. You're all like, yeah. oh, this is love. This is how I love. Yeah. And then you're like, wait, wait a minute. No, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a twisted version of love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But sometimes in our traumatized brains, that's what you think because you're so used to your space being hijacked and by people who said that they loved you. Yeah. Yeah. I've been developing some new work lately and I have a free ebook called the house that tenderness built that I've just written. I was and looking at that. Yeah. This came out of several months of therapy. I, I had really quite a rough year last year and I went back into therapy. I've been in therapy various periods of my life and went in again and really recognized how, I simply did not know how to be tender with myself and I could be tender with other people. But when it came to myself, I just wasn't looking after myself the same way. And so I started to practice that. And what does tenderness look like? What is tenderness? What if I live in a house that tenderness builds? What if I actually embrace myself and surround myself with tenderness? And then there's a boundary that tenderness is saying, nope, inside this boundary there's only tenderness allowed and that's how we treat ourselves in here and it's been a really powerful exercise to begin to experiment with yeah no I'm not a martyr I'm not sacrificing myself I'm being kind to myself I'm looking after myself doesn't mean I won't stand up against social injustice it doesn't mean I don't I have good boundaries and I'll do what I need to do in the world but in treating myself I'm going to choose tenderness as my guide it's good. Very important. It sounds great. <laughs> yeah. That was, I, I used to have a lot of issues with absorbing everybody else's energy type of thing. Basically, if somebody was angry around me, I'd start to feel angry. And I didn't know how to differentiate or how to stop that. Mm -hmm. How you were saying you, you become the shock absorber yourself. Yeah. And then my therapist one day was like, imagine you have a garden, your mind is a garden and it's got big high walls and the only people who can come in are the ones that you let in. Yeah. And that was super, super helpful to me because yeah. yeah. as traumatized people, sometimes you don't realize that you don't have to let other people hijack your space <laughs> and you don't have to let other people mistreat you and you don't have to let other people walk all over you. I don't know. It, it becomes almost like you feel like it's your place. Like it's your duty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, Cause that's the thing. Like when we've been, 
raised in environments where there is no such thing as a boundary. And clearly from what I hear of your story, there was nobody who respected your boundary. There was nobody who had a clue what you needed and and cared for you and get, treated you in a way that allowed you to have boundaries. And that's one of the things I've worked really hard with my daughters is trying to help them as they grow up know that they have a right to boundaries from a young age because nobody told us that from a young age. And so we end up in marriages without boundaries. We end up with kids who are allowed to cross our boundaries. And I remember just after my divorce, I, I, I went for therapy one, one day and was really realizing how bad my boundaries were. And I came home and I sat my daughters down. And I said, okay, I need some better boundaries. I respect your boundaries and now I need you to respect mine. One of the things that was bothering me is that I'd go to bed at night and they would barge into my bedroom after I'd fallen asleep for anything they wanted. And it just didn't feel, I couldn't fall asleep feeling safe and secure. And because I didn't know when the, you know, the door, and I said, okay, this is one boundary. They were all teenagers old enough by then that they could respect that. I said, Once I go to bed and close the door, that door is closed. And unless there's an emergency, the house is burning down. I need you to respect my space the way I respect yours. I don't barge into your bedroom. So I need you to give that back to me. And they were all very respectful and they totally got it. And they realized how, you know, I'd been allowing them to cross those boundaries for years and years. And now I had to stop and say, Things are going to change around here. Hmm. And when helping them see that mom was worthy of boundaries too, not just them, it, it helped change our family dynamic and hmm. helped me protect something that I needed to protect. That's really so important. good. That's really good. Yeah, very important. Sometimes you got to set boundaries with your kids too. It's Absolutely. It's not just yeah. going to be with your, your peers or your spouse or anything like that. Yeah. It can be anybody that's taking advantage of us. And then a lot of times, too, you don't realize that you can tell them to stop. (laughs) Exactly. It was, they didn't take it, they weren't that offended by it or anything. It was just like, okay, we'll stop doing that. Or if they need something, they'll knock or something. It just was a a simple request. We didn't have to be a huge fight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Or, yeah, because you might find out that there's going to be people that actually appreciate you setting those boundaries because they might not know. They might not even realize that they're stepping over, that they're, that they don't realize that they're a bull in a china shop. They think they're out on the pasture just like running around. So, like, actually by saying, hey, this, this, I don't feel okay with this. I don't feel safe and, and I don't want to keep being in this place that feels unsafe for, for me. I would say that the majority of people are going to go, oh, I yeah, you're right. <laughs> and take that step back. So in, in doing that, you actually are, you're giving some of that healing to them as well by being able to do that. Like you're giving yeah. both of you a chance to step up. When we actually are willing to take the risk to, to communicate our boundaries with people that we want to be in a relationship, it's a level of trust with them. Like I'm trusting you to look after me the way I'm asking you to look after me. If you can't, then we'll look for some other way of distancing our relationship or whatever that is. But if you trust somebody, genuinely trust somebody, then you have to also trust them with that request. And and that's a way to clarify. I talk in some of my work about developing healthy social contracts with the people that you love. What are the needs that you need me to protect? What are the things that 
that you're asking me to respect in this relationship. And if I know, if I have that information, it's clearer for me how I can love you. You're giving me a rule book for how to love you. And that's a healthier relationship in the end. Mm. Yes, totally. And sometimes we can be afraid to ask for things that we need or something like that. And then when you finally say it, then the people are like, oh, okay, sure. And you're like, oh, I thought that was going to go way worse than that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it took me a long time to to tell my husband that I needed help with the housework. Because <laughs> it's just something that you're just like, you should know. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think a lot of times that's the thing in our mind is you should know. You should know yeah. what I need. How are they going to know? Have you ever told them? Have you right. ever said, I can't keep up with all of this by myself? Could you lend me a hand? Because you'd be surprised sometimes when you do. They're like, oh, okay, sure. Yeah. What do you want help with? Yeah. And then the whole time you're like, oh, no, I can't do that because of this or because of that. Or they're going to think this or whatever. And then you do it and you're like, that went much better than I expected. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if it's a person who genuinely loves you and knows how to not just get triggered in their own stuff. Because that's the thing. We can get so easily triggered into our own stuff. And one of the things I say about holding space is that it's actually the hardest to do it with people who are closest to us. Because those are the people who we really want to control the most. The people that are close to us. Because that's what gives us safety, a feeling of control of what's around mm. us. And like if your partner comes to you and says, I really want to quit my job and I'm, I'm really fed up. You're, it's probably going to cause anxiety for you and stress. And so you're going to want to control the outcome. You need them to have a job. And so it's hard to hold space for whatever they're going through. And those are the times sometimes I say, you know what, those might be times they actually need to talk to somebody else who's a little <laughs> bit more objective than you, because you're going to hijack the space with your own needs. You're going to get triggered into your own anxiety. And so that mm. might be a time to outsource it. And I often tell people, know when to ask for outside help, a therapist or a coach or counselor, or whatever, because mm -hmm. if you're too close to the situation, there's a greater temptation to hijack the space. Very true. Super good point. <laughs> wow. Such good stuff. <laughs> the eight month program, I'm super interested now, but <laughs> the eight month program, how does that work? What does it look like for someone to go sure. through that? program with you so we start every october we offer it once a year for eight months and it's weekly calls you get a, a workbook like there's five modules the first module is holding space for others and then holding space for yourself and then there's a um, module around holding space in community so that's learning practices around how to hold space in what we call the circle way and then there's mm -hmm. holding space in complexity. So that's starting to look at what might be the power imbalances, what might be the where there's conflict when things get really complex. And then holding space one-on-one. -on -one, and that might be like a coaching relationship or a therapist mm -hmm. relationship or something like that. It's broken up into five modules. You don't have to take the whole eight months. I call it an eight-month program, but you can sign up for just the first module or the first two if you're taking the first, we often encourage people to also take the second because that's the holding space for yourself that gets fairly integral and important to the work. So that's yeah. our, we call it our foundation program on Center for Holding Space. You can find it under the foundation program. We also have quite a few other options that are shorter. Some of them are self-study programs that people can sign up for and do on their own timing as well. 
Wow, that's awesome. That's very great. Are you a coach as well? I have done coaching for a number of years. I'm training other people to do it. I don't have any coaching clients right now, but uh, I have people who work for me who are doing coaching. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. We're both trained. We both took coach training oh, courses. Great. That was super helpful for me. Yeah. That was more helpful than a lot of the therapy. I don't know if I just didn't have really good therapy, <laughs> but it just changed my whole mindset. Yeah. Great. Like, good to hear. I don't know. It just really opened up my mind a lot and helped me realize that there's ways to go about things and to get to your goals and it's possible for everybody to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And then also to everybody needs a little help here and there. Yeah. Nobody yeah. can just do a one man show and just be great the whole entire time. Sometimes you need somebody. All the greatest people have coaches, right? Yeah. Like exactly. Olympians have yeah. five coaches. <laughs> yeah. You have a coach yeah. for this and a coach for that and a coach for the <laughs> other. And then we're like, no, I don't need a coach. Yeah. And then no. you're like, but if you really want to improve on what you're doing, you need somebody to open the door for you. Yeah. Sometimes I say the most powerful thing to impact change is just the right question. And that's what coaching is, is I'll just come alongside you, listen to your story, and then ask you a question you might not have thought to ask yourself. And that's sometimes all it takes. Like I can think back to some of the questions people ask me. It's like, I totally changed the course of my life. Something new opened up. And yeah, that's what we all need. Yeah, you get pretty stuck in your own little spiral of thoughts if somebody doesn't oh, yeah. shift yes. out of it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Though it's true, and sometimes it's not all very clear either when it's all mm-hmm. up in your head, jumbled around like a big pot of soup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got to start pulling out those things and looking at them one by one. <laughs> Do you have any other questions, Whisper? Did we ask? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm drinking out of a hose a little bit right now. So, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's really great. It's really great. It's a lot to absorb and, and learn. What I've been pulling in from this conversation we have been having is that because I would have before, <laughs> probably before this conversation, said that I'm actually pretty good at holding space mm-hmm. for other people. But I'm not good at holding space for myself. By definition, I can't really be good at holding space for other people. <laughs> so it, it just it it's just made me think about some of the times where maybe I I felt like I was holding space was that I was just being a shock absorber or just like taking on something that wasn't even my responsibility and then robbing someone else of that chance to self reflect and make their own course change. Yeah, it's just it's a really yeah. good it's a really good aspect I think of holding space is being able to do that for yourself yeah I mean it can be pretty confronting and that's why sometimes I think it's I every time we get to the second module of our program I see it in people where they suddenly have a bit of a deer in the headlights look and and there's always somebody who wants to blame me I I, you brought me here this is what you want me to do and I said I'm used to it if you need to rant about it a little bit but because it can be confronting to realize oh wait I gotta work on my own baggage at the end of the day that's what's getting in the way of me 
this is what's triggering me into hijacking and stuff. And it's, it, yeah, it's not necessarily easy, but when you start to do it and learn it, it's always going to wor- be worth it because in the end, it allows us to be free. And I want to be in relationships that allow me to be free. And when I can allow others to be free, then we can both be free. If I'm liberating you, then I'm also liberating me. And that's how, that's what holding space at the end of the day, that's what it's about is liberation. It's very true. It's hard to look at yourself in the mirror. Indeed. Without the filters, just really look at who you are and what you've gone through and what you need to work on and what you have to do to help you to continue to grow and be a better person. Yeah. My favorite thing. I don't want to be better than anybody else. Just <laughs> better than who I was yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe just the same as you were yesterday. That's the other thing is we don't need to beat ourselves up for the days that we just can't do any better. We're just humans and we're doing the best we can. And like I say, there's so much there were so many obstacles in our path and we've already overcome so many of those obstacles. Sometimes you just have to rest. And that's why this whole thing on tenderness was just like, sometimes you just have to give yourself a break and just (laughs) stop trying to be better every day and just be, this is who I am now. And I love this version of me and I'm just going to settle in and be okay with this. That's true. That's hard to do sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> especially when you've had the the whole lifestyle of the do more, be more, then yeah. you're more worthy. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, for sure. It's hard yeah. to just stop and say, "I'm okay. I'm okay here. Yeah, I'm gonna be okay." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it is interesting though to think about that in in the sense of like when you're mar- martyring yourself that in itself is a form of control. It is trying to control the situation when you're like to any other expense, including my own, I need to, you know, fix this thing by making that person happy. And it doesn't look like what would regularly people would think is control. It's not like you must do this and you must do that. It's no, let me take all your pain. And that's actually me controlling the situation instead of, instead of coming at it from a healthy way. So I like think like, That's a good realization. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. If I'm not allowing you to experience the pain that you need to experience in order to grow, then I'm not actually serving a healthy purpose. I'm martyring myself for no real value. Maybe I'm making things easier for you, but I'm not actually looking after you. Yeah. Very true. (laughs) <laughs> another really good point <laughs> our listeners are going to be like okay i need to pause this one <laughs> that was a lot i've got to let that absorb in here a little bit <laughs> uh, these are all so good and such like yeah. fundamental mental health type of yeah things but it takes time. It's It, it sure. just takes it time. I've been doing this for many years and there's still, like I say, I had to go back into th- therapy this year because it was like, oh shit, there's another layer I've got to peel back. Part of us now, I think. So we're not going to arrive. Is that what you're telling us? 
<laughs> I wish I could give I wish I could give you an easier answer, but <laughs> I guess that's where the being okay with yourself comes in, huh? Exactly. If that's arriving, then yes, I think you can arrive. You can arrive at a place where it's just okay to be me and I'm mm-hmm. okay with that. And as flawed as I am, as you know, fragile as I am, I can still love me. The more I love myself, the more people will experience love in my presence and because there's a core of love there. And so, I, yeah, that's it's not selfish. That's serving you, the world that you're in. Yeah. It's easy to feel selfish or sometimes when you're traumatized too, if you start to feel like, oh, okay, I might not be that bad. Then you're like, oh my God, I'm a narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And you're like, okay, no, I'm not. I'm just, it's okay to love yourself. Yeah. It is okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Cause we were taught, like, don't love yourself at all right. because there's no good in you. It's only God and you're absolutely nothing and this and that. So, yeah, that's a that hard, is, like, oh, that's another piece too. We didn't talk about that much, but the original sin piece that we were taught to believe that as tiny babies, we were already bad. We, that's so deeply rooted in our belief system that it's hard to, to, find your way to a place of valuing yourself when that's your conditioning and your trauma. Yes. Very true. We'll all find that place someday. (laughs) (laughs) The garden in our hearts where we can love ourselves unconditionally. Yeah. We're on our way. (laughs) Yeah. Go go sit on that little bench in my heart garden. hard to sometimes to just learn to be with yourself like a lot of people are afraid of being alone they never want to not have something going on because then they have to stop and be like wait who am i it's true yeah it's very true that can be a painful place to be if you don't love yourself it can be really hard to be by yourself and with spend too much time by yourself and that's why the last few years like even the pandemic has actually in some ways been good for me because I've really with my kids moving away in the pandemic I've really learned to be really good with being alone <laughs> and I'm quite content because I enjoy my own company <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody fights me for the remote and I can do whatever I want and yeah yeah exactly it's oh, fantastic exactly I think that's probably one of the reasons why journaling getting a practice of journaling can be such a healing space is because you, that's what you're doing is, yeah. is you're actively engaging with yourself. Sometimes I've thought about if what's something that you could like, just tell someone, try this, take this as your first step. And I've had someone say, suggest journaling as being one of those. So I guess that kind of goes hand in hand with the making space for yourself too. Yeah. Yeah. I've been a lifelong journaler and that's one of the things that I send people to too. But, but for a lot of people, it's not easy. Like I've had a lot of people come back to me and say, I don't know how to journal. What do I write? Like they become (laughs) very confused with it. And so I've, I've developed some resources, even the book on tenderness that gives guides people in what to write in their journal gives journal prompts and things like that because yeah sometimes you need an entry point when something feels like it's overwhelming and some people even shame themselves for it and stuff like oh, i'm not a good writer or whatever i have all kinds of stories about <laughs> yeah that. and 
yeah. And I keep telling him that's not really the point. <laughs> like you don't have to be a good writer to be, a, to write in a journal. So yeah, it won't work for everybody, but other things can work for other people. And I, I one yes. of the things that I did early in the pandemic is what I call my messy COVID art practice. Like I just have a big canvas in my basement and I go down there and finger paint on it. And I don't use brushes. I don't make anything beautiful. I just do messy, like throwing paint at this canvas. And that's helped me release a whole lot of emotions during this oh, period. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's just messy. And it's not about what I produce. It's just, yeah, it's just processing stuff. I love that. <laughs> is that ebook on your website as well yeah if you go to heatherplatt.com slash tenderness so i have two different websites i don't know if you've clued into that but heatherplatt.com is where i house a lot of my own writing and stuff and then we have centerforholdingspace.com and that's where we run the programs and that's what i share with my business partner but on on my website heatherplatt.com slash tenderness and you all you have to do is register for my newsletter and you'll get an automatic link to download it cool oh wow thank awesome. you that's it's a wonderful gift thank you yes you're very welcome it's been such an honor having you mm-hmm. and this has been a very deep soul searching <laughs> podcast <laughs> for us yeah yeah. Go and and go do something tender for yourself. That's what I say. Get off the podcast and go do something really gentle and tender and cuddle with a stuffed toy if you need to. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. I like that. Yes. Thank you Thanks so much. Thank you yeah. for taking your time with us and for holding space for us. <laughs> You're welcome. It's yeah. been a great privilege.